Welcome to the Wake Park Church Weekly Conversations Podcast. This podcast is a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. We meet for worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. and other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. If you have feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org. And now, on with today's episode. Well, welcome to another episode of the Wait Park Church Conversations podcast. My name is Abby, and we are here today with a smaller crew. I have just Corey here with me. Hi, Abby. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm all right. How about yourself? Good. This is going to be kind of weird, only having the two of us. It It is going to be a little weird, but you know, I this is a pretty deep topic, so I'm not saying that other people will be out of their depth. I feel a little out of my depth in this conversation, but maybe it'll be a good opportunity to just hone in on some things rather than the the somewhat scattered approach we can sometimes have when we have all four of us. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll uh, I I think I'm ready. I, you know, I've got lots of notes and I'm I'm going to try not to get into too much trouble <laughs> with this, but <laughs> For sure. And at least at least we get to be inside. We get to be warm. Mhm. Oh, this is man, a very it's... cold week. By the time this episode oh. drops, it might not even be above zero. Right. Well, yeah, because t- I don't know what it is today, but I know it's getting down into the single digits. And next week is supposed to be negative something. Yeah. And with wind chill, uh, it's just it's rough. Yeah. Normally, and, I would think of listening to a podcast while I go on a walk or something like that. But I'm not yeah. sure how many people are going to listen to this while walking, at least outside. Right. Well, and and the average temperature right now is supposed to be 26. That's the average high. Okay. So we're at least 20 degrees below normal. I, I'm very much not Minnesotan. So for those no. of you who are listening who are wondering, I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not used to this. <laughs> and I think there are a lot of Minnesotans at this time of year who wonder why we are. But uh, but soon it will be spring and then summer and summer is glorious around here. So this is this is true. We did some long range planning this week and it was amazing when you start thinking about just how quickly things like Easter and Memorial Day and the summer are going to come. So, yeah, yeah, it's coming fast. Yeah. So for those of you that are are freezing this week along with us while we're recording, um, their end is the end is in sight. Winter Mm -hmm. will come to an end. There are good things ahead. Yeah, praise the Lord. Yeah. So let's go ahead and dive into our topic for the day. It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek titling this episode Questions in Genesis because, <laughs> frankly, there just are a lot of questions that have come up, um, questions that have been long-standing in the church for a long time and other questions that people from our congregation have brought up as a result of some of the study we've been doing on the book of Genesis. And chances are, when you get done listening to the podcast, you might have even more questions and (laughs) you'll have questions that you didn't even realize you had before after we get done talking about this. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. That's that's a good thing to to have questions. God is big enough to handle those questions. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So let's start off just with some big picture, laying the groundwork for this conversation. What are some of the different ways that we can read Genesis? You know, that's an important question. And, you know, as we've been kind of kicking this around in the office, one of the keys to it is how we read Genesis can really impact how people view the authority of Scripture, and that's mm-hmm. and that I think for a lot of people, the questions that they have in Genesis, that's the that's the heart of the issue. Can we trust Scripture? Yeah. And and so then when you start to have questions, especially questions like in Genesis, the common one today is the question, but or the the supposed contradictions between science and biblical interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's one of the biggest. Um, issues, f- especially for a lot of young Christians, uh, Scott McKnight, who's one of my favorite New Testament scholars, says that this is one of the number one issues for his students because he he teaches intro to Bible, and so he has like science majors in his classes, and yeah. so often when he starts talking about Genesis and starts talking about sort of different uh, interpretations or different ways to read Genesis, he said, 
you know, there have been times when I have had kids come into my office after class with tears in their eyes and say, uh, you just saved my faith today. Hmm. And the reason is that they're going through these these science classes at a Christian university, evangelical, conservative Christian university. They're going through these science classes, uh, teaching evolution, at least in some form, and they believe the science. And so then when they get to Bible class, then they have to and, – and if you have a teacher who – says, no, you have to have this overly literalistic view of creation, then they feel like they have to decide between believing science and keeping their faith. Mm-hmm. And and it creates a, a real tension for many students, you know, who don't want to give up on Jesus, who don't want to give up on the Bible, and yet they see the evidence for evolution in one form or another to be overwhelming. And yet then they're told by their professor that, well, they're incompatible. And and so when Scott McKnight teaches, he, he says, you know, I don't think they're incompatible. I think you can hold on to both. Hold on to the authority and inspiration of Scripture and also believe the science and you don't have to choose. And that's a, a life-giving thing for yeah. a lot of students. But that's what's at stake here, right, is, is can we believe modern science and also uh, Scripture? But, but I think it comes down to, you know, and that's a, you know, one of the things that I was taught when I was growing up was I, I sat in many seminars by youth pastors that the whole purpose of them was to convince me that evolution was not true Mm -hmm. um, and that the Bible was true. And what I've seen over the years is not only were they doing bad science, but they were also doing bad biblical interpretation. Mm -hmm. Um, In other words, what they were doing was they were twisting Mm -hmm. science and they were twisting the Bible to get to this view that the Bible is right and science is wrong. And the, the bad part about that is, is that that's not a historical view of the church. From very early on in the church, the church fathers had this view of, of the two books of scripture. Uh, sorry, the, the two books of, of truth or two books of revelation. Uh, one of them was the, uh, the book of nature and the other one was the book of scripture. And both of them are avenues to be able to find the truth. And so obviously the book of nature uh, we can we can learn about God from things like science, from observing the world, from observing human nature. You know, there are some general mm-hmm. things that we can know. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. I was just going to say, Romans 1. There are things yeah. that are evident in what God has created that reveal God's truth. Right, exactly. And that's and so so we believe then that we can we can find truth in that way. If we believe that all truth is God's truth, then we shouldn't be afraid of what science is going to find out. The other book then is the book of scripture, which, you know, we take as our our guide, our authority for life that we believe is is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that's where we find out the big questions of life, the questions of meaning, who is God? Who are we? How do we interact in the world? What's our purpose in life? And so they answer two sets of questions that might overlap a little bit, but largely their their, their purposes are very different. Uh, but both of them are means and avenues to get to the truth. And so what we do then is we use one to be able to interpret the other. If the book of Scripture is our ultimate authority, then we can use the book of nature which includes, you know, science and psychology and sociology and all of those other studies to help us to interpret the Bible better. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Our interpretation is not. And yes. so we have to separate those things out, our interpretation from, from the Bible. And this is something that the church has done since the beginning. You know, there are some doctrines that the medieval church had that— we uh, we started to see in science that they were that they were wrong, and so then we went back to our Bibles and we said, "All right, so how does this how does this fit in there? How does this help us to interpret better?" And, and you know, you think about like Copernicus and Galileo and and a lot of the cosmology, uh, mm-hmm. the heliocentric worldview. Well. Galileo, that was a that was a real time of struggle between science and scripture. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time, but eventually they worked it out. And now 
uh, we don't have any problem believing that the universe doesn't revolve around the Earth, right? right? We we know how the universe works, and we don't think that that contradicts the 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 biblical account. But but it was something that had to be worked out over a long period of time, and and I think that'll you know continue to happen because our our interpretation as we get new information will sometimes change on certain things. But that's also the nature of science, um, which is why I don't think we ought to. Anytime some scientific uh, finding comes out, immediately go, well, this changes everything. You know, because the nature of science is to change. You find new things, you develop a theory, and it's either proven or disproven, and then you adjust. And, and so science science changes. So I, I don't think that we ought to be continually changing biblical doctrines on the basis of science. But I think we take a long process of sort of working these things out and work really hard to come come to the truth. So I don't think that answered your original question. Well, I was just going to say, let's take some of those things that you were just talking about and draw them out into. So the implications of those things lead to what different sorts of ways that people read Genesis. There's You alluded to this literal interpretation of the Genesis right. account. What are some of the other ways that people can read Genesis? Yeah, I, I think maybe instead of Talking about it as literal, maybe talking about it as historical would be maybe a better way. So basically, this this is especially the case when it comes to like human beings. People mm-hmm. ask the question, were Adam and Eve um, actual historical human beings? Because, you know, there are some questions. In fact, some of the questions that we got are sort of based on that assumption. That, right. And it creates problems even just within the biblical account. So basically, there are, there are sort of three views uh, or three general ways that you can read Genesis. Uh, the first one is a sort of literal historical view. We would see this as like the young earth creationist account. And so they would basically say that that God created the universe in six 24-hour periods. So mm-hmm. day means six 24-hour periods. And then rested on the, on the seventh day. And then you know, the uh, sun, moon, stars, all of that were created on the various days. And then humanity created on the sixth day. And generally the way they work it out, and I don't remember the guy's name, but there was a a guy that that basically worked it out through the genealogies of the Bible that this Mm -hmm. happened like six or 7,000 years ago. So in other words, the the earth and humanity are only 6,000 or 7,000 years old. And God literally formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and literally took a, a rib from Adam and made Eve. Um, and, I, sat and so through, that's, I sat through a youth group presentation on that whole thing. You talked about youth group earlier. That was yeah, the youth yeah. group talk I sat through where like, we right. worked out like how long a generation was and counted up all of these generations and how, what does it equal up to, guys? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's very much that view. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a fairly recent view. Not to say that like early church, some early church fathers or other Christians throughout church history uh, haven't thought of Adam and Eve, for instance, as literal historical people. They cer- certainly have, but the amount of detail that we're trying to put into it, especially based on modern science, or that that seems to jibe with modern science is a, is a pretty, pretty new view at the other end of the spectrum would be people who would say, well, this is, this is just a, a literary figure. It's a literary story, almost like a myth. Now, I, I don't think you can call it a myth because myth is is actually a very specific genre that seems to to take place outside of time and space. In this case, it does seem to describe events uh, of some sort in time and space. But this view would probably s- would say something like, well, Adam and Eve weren't actual humans, but it, they're representative of humanity. So there wasn't really an actual Adam and Eve, but they're all of us. And so some of the church fathers would say something like that. Origen was uh, was one of them, although he he had more of what you would call an allegorical interpretation of Genesis mm-hmm. that like the seven... I think it was I think it was origin that the seven days of creation or the seven eras of humanity or something like that you know so it's just completely allegorical no literal uh, historical adam and eve but even even people who who would believe that 
still say, no, Scripture is our authority, uh, but it was just not meant to be read literally or historically um, yeah. in that way. So, so don't misunderstand. If, if someone has a, has a literary view of Adam and Eve, that doesn't mean that they don't believe the Bible or that they don't believe in Jesus. It's just that they believe that, that Genesis is that kind of literature, that it wasn't it, it's not describing actual events, but that it's a but it's a, a story that is meant to communicate the the truth about who God is and who we are and all that. So just because people don't believe that Adam and Eve are literal doesn't necessarily mean that they that they don't believe that it's true or authoritative. So for instance, think about the parables of Jesus, uh, the 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 parable of the Good Samaritan. Does it change, does it make Jesus' parable any less authoritative if the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, isn't historical? Like mm. if there was no actual Good Samaritan and no actual guy who was on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho? I think most of us would say no, not at all. In fact, you know, we'd be pretty comfortable saying that, that Jesus' parables are not describing historical events. But the truth that they communicate, and I think largely because Jesus is the one who's communicating it, we would say, well, we, we trust that, we're faithful to that, and, and you know, we would stake our lives on it. So, yeah. so I think um, people who would take a, a literary reading of Adam and Eve would, would do the same thing there. And then there's a there's one that's I don't know if I want to call it a middle ground but there's actually another option that that's a fairly recent one and this one has to do somewhat with kind of responding to some scientific data although I think there are some people who would hold this view who would say well it's not really a response to that we just think this is the way it's supposed to be read and then the scientific data confirms it and it would be this is the, the so the first view would say that Adam and Eve were the first humans and when God created them they were the only humans on earth uh, well this middle view or a sort of Adam and Eve as representative could be that God chose Adam and Eve, who were homo sapiens 10,000 years ago, not the only ones on earth at the time, but God chose them to breathe life through them. And they're the ones that the story kind of started through, even though there were other humans around that Adam and Eve, just like God chose Abraham or God chose Moses, that he chose Adam and Eve to to begin that part of the story. And, and of course, what that does then is it actually fits with some of the uh, uh, genetic evidence that is around these days that tell us um, the way our genes are are situated or, or distributed among humanity, that it's not possible that, th- that modern human beings came from a, a single pair of people 10,000 years ago. They said if something like that happened, it would have been 100,000 or maybe even 200,000 years ago. And of course, if that's the case, then that creates some problems with the biblical timeline and all of that. So right. now... None of these views is without its problems. We're trying to trying to figure some of these out. I think the idea of Adam and Eve as the as the first pair, as the sole progenitors of the human race, doesn't fit very well with a lot of the scientific data around. The the non-historical or the literary one, it raises some questions about, well, what about what about sin nature? What was the purpose of Jesus if the account of the fall in Genesis chapter three wasn't historical? You know, what does that do to some of the doctrines of our faith? And and I've actually read a few people who would take more of a, a literary view. And I think they're still kind of working through some of those things. They very much right. would want to hold on to those doctrines, but they're trying to figure out, okay, so then what what does this mean? Or actually to go back to Jesus and ask the question, did Jesus think that Adam and Eve were were historical figures? Or did Paul think that Adam and Eve were historical figures? Um, or how did, how did they read them? What was the, what was the uh, sort of Jewish reading of the day? And then, of course, the representative view, that's a pretty new view. They're still trying to kind of figure out what are, the, what are all the, the implications, you know? So anyway, but those are, those are kind of three different views that are possible. Yeah. Now, I think you may have freaked a few podcast listeners out, even just by walking through those different views, because yeah. depending on which view you grew up around or first heard, some of those other views can feel a little, um, 
I don't know if threatening is the right word, but there is part of that that like when sure. there's a challenge to a long held interpretation of something that it can be a little unnerving. So I appreciate yeah. you highlighting um, that there are strengths and weaknesses to each of those viewpoints and then each of them can also be rooted in a love for and respect of scripture and a belief mm-hmm. in the authority of scripture. Yeah. Um, and and that's the key is that of course there are there are other views of Genesis that say well the whole thing is just hogwash. The views that I highlighted are ones that people take who want to hold on to who very much believe in the authority of scripture. And that's one of the things that I, that I want you to see. These are people who are who I would consider to be historically Orthodox Christians who love Jesus. There are evangelicals that hold all of these views. And so I think then people would, would say, for instance, with a, with a non-historical or a literary Adam and Eve, well, if we're doing that, then aren't we just kind of adjusting scripture or trying to twist scripture in order to fit science. And I and I actually don't think that's necessarily the case. Certainly people do that. I mean, that, that, that is something. But I, I think what it should always do is it should cause us to go back to scripture and to say, well, what is the, what is the right way to read this? Yeah. And, and I think one of the the, the trends that I'm seeing in, in evangelical scholars right now is, is going back and, and trying to figure out, especially with the book of Genesis, what would the original writers have believed about this? Or what were they trying to say? What questions were they, were they trying to answer? Because we do that with every book that we read in the Bible. If we're reading the letters of Paul, we try to try to recreate the situation and say, what are the questions that Paul was answering? What were the concerns of the people who were reading? What are the concerns that that he had? And not try to impose our Western questions and ideas on a biblical writer who had no idea about modern science or doing history the way we do. You know, history was done in the ancient world very differently than we do. And so what what people will say is, is what we're doing is, is we're not just trying to make the Bible fit science. We're trying to read the Bible faithfully in the way it was intended to be read. Yeah. And, and and science can help us do that, as well as other disciplines like linguistics and ancient history and, and things like that. All of those can help us to be able to read the Bible more accurately. And sometimes it takes time, because if you've been stuck in, in one way of, of looking at it for a long time, it can be hard to to consider that there might be other options out there. Yeah. Uh, kind of a light bulb moment for me or something that flipped a switch in terms of my thinking was connecting the dots between, you know, Moses is largely the one who's believed mm-hmm. to have written Genesis or most right. of Genesis. And if Moses is the one that was writing down, especially Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and a little, you know, we're going to get into some of Genesis 4, but if he's the one that mm-hmm. wrote those things down, Moses was not present he wasn't at those there. events. <laughs> I mean, it, all scripture is divinely inspired, but there are right. some that like Luke is largely recording firsthand accounts or, you know, th- testimony mm-hmm. that he received from witnesses that he interviewed. Yeah. Moses was not interviewing Adam and Eve, you know. So mm-hmm. what what was Moses trying to communicate to his original audience? What was God exactly. trying to communicate to his people through Moses in that, you know, original context? It's just interesting to right. think about that. Yeah, and and understand also that with the exception of probably some uh some passages in the prophets and maybe Revelation, Christians don't believe that the Bible was directly dictated by God, word for word. Right. Right. We we do believe and we know that a lot of it, a lot of the things, the stories uh, were passed down from generation to generation, and they were only written down at a certain point in time. And so we have to understand the difference between a literary culture and an oral culture and yeah. how they told stories. It's it's very different than that. Mm-hmm. And, and that doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that it's not reliable. We believe that God communicated exactly what he wanted to communicate in the way he wanted to communicate. And so there is a there is a bit of faith there that that we have to say, well, 
yes, we, we do believe in the authority of Scripture, and we do believe that it is, it is the guide for life, that it is the Word of God. And that's a, a commitment that we have. And then, but there are a lot of details in there that we look at and, and say, well, you know, we, we've got to kind of work these things out. I, I would bet that everyone who's listening to this at some point has had some view of Scripture that has changed from the time they were a kid <laughs> to right now. At least I hope so. Yeah. Right? Because the way kids understand things is way different than, than the way adults understand them. Yeah. And speaking as someone who works in children's ministry, sometimes the way we explain things to kids is mm-hmm. developmentally appropriate, but also not as nuanced right. as it should be, because there are some things that kids just aren't ready for. So yeah, there's absolutely ways in which we need to grow in our understanding of an interpretation of scripture. Yeah, it has to be that way. So so inevitably, though, one, one of the questions that people will have then is, is so for instance, if Genesis is not historical, Adam and Eve are not historical, then how how can someone say that the Bible is authoritative? Mm. And my answer to that is, doesn't have to do with Genesis, it has to do with Jesus. Tell and, us more about that. Okay. So if we are reading scripture in the way that it was intended to be read, the gospels were intended to be read historically and not li- not literally, because even history at that time was different. And so it doesn't include all of the details that we would have been interested in, but it is um, actual events that happened within history. And so we believe, uh, for instance, that Jesus was a real person. We believe that Jesus was God came come in the flesh and that he died on the cross and he rose again. And we believe that not in some kind of existential uh, sort of way, but we, but we believe it in a historic way that this was an event that actually happened. And in fact, we know that this uh, was the case, the, the way that it was intended to be read, number one, because the, the, the Gospels seem to not just imply that, but just the genre of the Gospels is it's, it's written as, as sort of historical. Uh, but also the Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's writing about the resurrection and he's kind of astonished that there are some Christians in the church who don't believe in the resurrection. They say, well, the resurrection isn't possible. And his answer is, he says, well, if Christ has not been raised, then my preaching is useless and so is your faith. Okay, in other words, if these events didn't actually happen, then everything that we're doing, find something else to do with your life, right? <laughs> Say nothing else matters if Jesus didn't actually die and was raised again to life. So, so for Paul, the, the resurrection is validation or proof of everything that Jesus did and said. Now, we also know that so much of what Jesus did and or what Jesus said, what he taught, has is a direct application from the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, in fact, when uh, the teachers of the law came to Jesus at, at one point, is it Matthew nineteen and Mark nine? There's there's some parallels in there, but basically they go to Jesus and ask him about divorce, and what he does is he goes back to Genesis, and he said. Don't you know that it says uh, in the beginning that God created male and female? And so he goes back to Genesis as the foundation for what he is teaching. And we see that, you know, over and over and over in Jesus's teachings. And so the uh, the authority of Scripture doesn't rest on my interpretation. The, the authority of Scripture for me rests on Jesus and his death and resurrection. So... If Jesus' death and resurrection happened, then I believe Jesus, and Jesus believed the Old Testament. Now, you know, we don't we don't know everything that Jesus, well, we'd say believed, but I guess Jesus doesn't believe things, he knows things, right? <laughs> um, what did Jesus know or what did he teach about the Old Testament? And that's a question, but, but it just, that gets into a, a question of interpretation, not, not a question of authority. Right. N.T. Wright describes it as, you know, Jesus didn't make a big deal about the authority of Scripture so much as it was just this implied underlying Mm -hmm. assumption and everything. I mean, you don't see Jesus questioning the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. He's asking people to view the Old Testament in light of him, Mm -hmm. but he's he's not making a big deal of it because there's an assumption that, like, yes, this is this is. God's word. This is scripture. This is important. It does matter. Yeah. And he doesn't spend time defending it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Because you don't defend things that you assume. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, And so that, that was Jesus. He, Jesus 
believe that scripture was the word of God and that it was authoritative. Now, at the time of Jesus, the gospels weren't around and Paul's letters weren't around. So for Jesus, that would have been the Old Testament, right? That's where I find the, the authority of scripture is I actually find it in Jesus. Yeah. So before we get into some more specific questions, I want to push a little further on this Mm -hmm. subject that we're on to just say, you know, if we do have, you know, let's say we're sitting in a group of people who love Jesus, but hold these varying views of ways that we can interpret Genesis, what are the things that you would say are essentials that we we have to agree on, the things that we all have to believe to be true if we're going to say that Scripture is authoritative? You mean in the Genesis story specifically? Yeah, specifically uh, in uh, the creation story? Yeah, in this creation story. What are the mm-hmm. non-negotiables? Yeah, uh, God <laughs> Thank you. Yes, First, God. God one, is a non-negotiable. <laughs> right. One one God that, and that God is Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not Baal or Mithra or you know that sort of thing. There's not a pantheon of Roman gods. Okay. That 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 seems pretty clear. Uh, that God is the creator. Yeah. In other words, all of this didn't just come from from nothing. Well, it came from nothing, but God created it out <laughs> right. of nothing. That, that God created the world with purpose and order. In other words, there, there are some things that God did intend uh, with creation, and he's communicating that in, in Genesis. I think the idea of humans made in the image of God as creatures, but as creatures that are different than every other creature, that have a special and unique relationship with God— uh, that that's different than any other creature in the world, regardless of how you think that came about. That is very very clear, and it's a foundational belief of Christianity that that humanity is special because God created us special. Um, what else? Oh, sin—the reality of sin—and that sin messes things up. I think that's a that's one. Yeah, there are probably others. Those are the ones that are kind of off off the top of my head. Yeah, I just think that's helpful to be able to establish. You know, there can be this, these different ways of interpreting Genesis, but there are some things that we really do need to, to mm-hmm. come back to as foundational. So that's helpful yeah. to have those outlined. Yeah, and, and the, reason I, the reason I go there with those is because throughout church history, there has, there has always been a huge variety of views of how we should read the creation story. From the very beginning, I mean, even the the Jews, there there wasn't a single way to read scripture. Rabbis had had all any number of different mm-hmm. ways to read it. The, the early church fathers, the reformers, the, there has always been a variety of views on how, exactly how to read scripture. But but sort of the foundational meaning of it is, is something that has been very consistent. All throughout, yeah. even from Jews to Christians, you know, there's a lot of consistency there in, in those things that I that I talked about, that God is the creator, there's one God, that God created order and purpose in the world, that humans are made in God's image, uh, that sin is a reality. All of those things, regardless of what view Christians or Jews have had about Genesis, those things are the things that have been consistent throughout time. Yeah. And if we happen to have any parents listening to this who are, you know, they're trying to figure out how to read Genesis themselves, let alone trying to Mm -hmm. figure out how to talk to their kids about it. um, I read a really helpful book called Generation to Generation by a woman named, I think it's pronounced Yale, but Yale Eckstein. And she is, she's, she's writing about things that Christian parents can learn from the Jewish tradition in terms of raising mm-hmm. their kids in the faith and passing on that faith to the next generation. And she really she talks about how questions are valued in a Jewish context and that they're not really shunned away. They encourage their kids to ask questions as they're approaching a text. And I don't know is an appropriate response to those questions. Yeah. But I think this is a really great opportunity for us to stretch ourselves too in allowing ourselves to ask those questions and be okay with questions when it comes to the mm-hmm. book of Genesis to encourage our kids to do the same. Like it's okay to come to God with questions. He's big enough for them. Yeah. And well, and, and just so, just so people know if probably there are a lot of people who, who want to know, well, what, what's my view, you know, among those, those three views. Uh-huh. And my answer is I'm not sure. I am not a young earth creationist. 
I, I believe the Earth is very, very old, Four, 14 billion years or something like that, I think is, is what they say. I think there are some things both about the representative view that Adam and Eve were not the first humans were created, but they were, but they were ones that were chosen by God or as sort of archetypes uh, in the same way that Abraham was. It's a pretty new view, so I'm still kind of sorting through. What does that mean? Does it work? Does it work theologically? You know, because I want to go back to Scripture, and I want to be able to say, how does that um, handle the the non-negotiable doctrines of of our faith? Because uh, I, I I'm not willing to let those go. Right. Um, so and then you know non-historical. So what does that mean if Adam and Eve weren't um, actual literal? historical figures. You know, what does that mean? What are the implications for the fall? What are the implications for a doctrine of original sin? Or what did what did Jesus's death on the cross accomplish? You know, because those are the foundational things that I believe in. I believe mm-hmm. Jesus was the Son of God, God come in the flesh, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he was raised again. All of those historical doctrines, all of them I believe. I'm not as certain about exactly how Genesis happened or exactly how we're supposed to read it. Some of it is is pretty new to me and and some of it I'm I'm still trying to sort through. But I but I do think that that there are things that that we cannot let go of and other things that we can just still try to figure out, well how does how does this work with with my faith? Yeah, cuz for all we know God made the world old. Right. <laughs> well, and that's and that's one of the things that that uh young earth creationists say is that that he um that he created the earth with the appearance of age. You know, if if I believe the Genesis 1-1, mm-hmm. in the beginning God created, then I, he can do whatever he wants. Exactly. I'm not sure why he would, but but you know what? I'm not going to... I gonna, don't either, but I'm not going to discount it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> yeah. going to discount it. So There's so much <laughs> but I don't that we just there. <laughs> don't know. We just don't know. And frankly, whether... Whether the world was created in six literal 24-hour periods or or whichever view we're going to hold, as long as yeah. we can come back to those core foundational truths, I'm okay with pushing on some of that. And I, mm-hmm. I don't mean to um, extend an invitation on Corey's part, or I guess I do because I'm going to say it anyways. But okay. if you are listening and you would like to push on some of these views and kind of yeah. think through implications, I, I can almost guarantee that Corey would be more than happy to have you stop by the office to grab a cup of coffee from the communal pot and sit on the yeah. couch in his office and talk. Absolutely. I, I would love to. As long as you don't come in calling me a heretic. Yeah. <laughs> I won't call you a heretic if you don't call me a heretic. Okay. That's good. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, the fact of the matter is that Orthodox Christians all throughout Christian history have believed, I, I don't know how much the representative view has been represented throughout history, but there, there have been all kinds of views of Genesis throughout that, that have been accepted and, uh, and tolerated within the church, so... So I don't think there's anything wrong with still trying to trying to figure it out, trying to figure out how does the how does the book of nature fit with the book of scripture. Yeah. Well, let's dive into a few more specific questions that we have gotten from some people in the congregation. Some things that right. you just start to wonder when you're reading this Genesis narrative. Yeah. So let's start off with um, let's start off with Adam and Eve. So one of our uh, one of our church members who sent in this question made the observation that the text doesn't say that God created only Adam and Eve. So mm. were they the only people that God created in this way? Adam from the dust, Eve from Adam's rib, and kind of connected to that. What about their kids? Like we see mm. in Genesis four, Cain and Abel are described in another son named Seth, and then in the middle of that chapter, Cain somehow finds a wife. Mm-hmm. So where did his wife come from? Talk to us a little bit about what we do with these seemingly appearing people. Are they the only ones? Mm-hmm. Tell, talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So this is this is one of the one of the reasons why science isn't the only issue with young Earth creationists. I think there are something some things within the biblical story itself that are are problematic if if you have a young earth creationist um, with with Adam and Eve being the only humans around at the time yeah just that that question of where did Cain get his wife that's a that's a, a text message that I got one, <laughs> one morning last week and that was that was kind of a fun one the other thing is when when Cain goes away from the episode with Abel he goes and he builds a city and 
my question is, is who is he building this city for? Yeah. Right? In his lifetime, was there going to be enough people? You know, I, I, so it seems to me that, that, that it wasn't necessarily intended to be taken that way. Because at that time, then, if we go literally strictly historical, then there was Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel for a while mm-hmm. until Cain killed him, then Seth. So yeah. Then there were only four people on earth. And so where did his wife come from? Well, um, maybe the maybe Genesis doesn't tell us about all of the daughters that Adam and Eve had. And then that becomes problematic, right? Because then uh, Cain is marrying his sister. And so I think it, it means that we have to find some explanations and tie some things up in knots if we want to be so specific about you know, what we think happened. So I actually forgot what your question is. <laughs> no, I, you, you got to the core of it. Like it, and I think you touched on some of this when you were talking about different interpretations, but basically where did these other people come from is, oh, right, is what yeah. we're getting mm-hmm. at. But I think, right. I think your point is valid in that, like there, there are certain questions that the text is trying to answer. Yeah. And it would appear that the question of where these other people came from is not the question that the text is trying to answer. Yeah. So, so a good uh, a good answer to that question is, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because there's so much. You know, there, there's so much that Genesis doesn't tell us. Right. Right. It just it just doesn't. The, those facts are not included because it, the the writer didn't find it relevant to the story. It doesn't because yeah. that doesn't tell us what is what is the meaning of all this. You know, I think the. The story of Cain and Abel, the story of Cain, um, is a is a story of the pol- proliferation of sin um, yeah. in the world, and and it's it's intended to talk about how sin just started to get out of control right from the beginning. Right, it's not there to answer all of the genealogical questions and and things like that. Although there are genealogies there, but you know the purpose of genealogies in the Bible tend to be to make theological points rather than. Yeah to make historical points. So yeah, even the genealogies, there's a different purpose than genealogies we make today. Yeah. All right. So let's back up a little bit more. Like, okay. well, we're going to go back to Adam and Eve, but you know, not factoring their kids into it. What What's kind of the difference between Adam and Eve being created as innocent rather than Adam and Eve being created as perfect? I think I remember you alluding to this a little bit, and I can't remember if it was in a sermon or a podcast or a conversation in the office. So people who are listening, if that sounds familiar, that's why we're asking this question. And if it doesn't, we're asking it for you now. Sure, sure. Yeah. The the difference there, I think, is, and, and it may not be as as big of an important concept as any as we make it out to be, but but it has to do with what was Adam and Eve's culpability for their sin? Like, um, I think it's Irenaeus. Uh, so there's differences between the church fathers in what they what they think Adam and Eve were like when they were made. Uh, mm-hmm. There's Augustine, I think, believed that they were like fully formed, fully morally responsible beings that knew exactly what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Irenaeus think took a different approach where he said that they were that they were innocent that they were like children basically hmm. um, and so they didn't really have the the full picture of what of what sin and morality and and all of that was and so the the difference between being perfect I, I think perf- perfect implies a couple of things number one that that you're not able to not be perfect that if you are created perfect, then you're you're kind of in, infallible, and that obviously was not the case for for Adam and Eve. I, I think right. there was a, a sort of naivety or um, an innocence that uh, that Adam and Eve had that that you would say. And what was what did I say? The difference between being innocent versus perfect. Innocent versus perfect. Yeah, yeah. I, I think innocence to some degree might might imply a, a certain level of naivety too. Sure, um, which is understandable. If there's not sin in the world, yeah, mm-hmm. you probably would be pretty naive and have a very different view of the world. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, there, there, there have been um, some scholars throughout church history who have said that the, the eating of from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a sort of coming of age for them. 
that mm-hmm. that's when they became morally responsible beings. Uh, before that, they were innocent. After that, they were guilty. But they had intimate knowledge of sin. They didn't know about sin as a theory, as a, as a theoretical construct, but they right. knew about it as a reality. And when you know about it as a reality, there's a, a sort of deeper level of knowledge. So I think that's, I don't know, that's probably not a very good answer. <laughs> I think it's, it starts to get in the helpful direction for the person who asked that question. Yep. We're going to come back to the trees in just a minute, but I, okay. I want to push a little bit more on Adam and Eve, too. So you've said uh, multiple times over the course of this focus season that all theology begins in Genesis. So mm-hmm. in light of that, what are those first few chapters of Genesis, particularly uh, in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, mm-hmm. um, about God creating us male and female, and then later in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, where it talks about um, a helper suitable for Adam was created in Eve. Mm-hmm. What, are the, what are these first few chapters and those passages especially teach us about gender? Ah. And then what do they teach us about marriage as well? Yeah. Well, okay. So, so this is actually an, an important thing. It wasn't necessarily relevant for the, the main teaching that we did throughout this series, but it actually is something that's a, that's a pretty important thing when it comes to our uh, Christian belief or Christian doctrine about uh, sex, sexuality, and marriage. Yeah. And, and even asking the question and using the word gender implies something because like today, when we talk about sex and gender, we're talking about two different things, yeah. right? So we're, sex is a, is a biological term. Uh, gender is how people sort of live out. It's, it's their, uh, their expression of their, um, and, and, some people, and I don't, I don't think this is an option for Christians, but some people would say that you can live out whatever gender you want, regardless of what sexed body you have. I think for Christians, I think it's very clear from Genesis that we are male or female, right? Yeah. Now, and this is really hard because on the one hand, we're talking about doctrine and we're talking about theological anthropology, but we're also talking about people. Yeah. And so... We can't allow that to get lost because I don't want people who are listening who might struggle with gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction, you know, who might be gay, to think that that we are dissecting people like we do in a lab, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because, because there are things that we have to hold, not intention, but we have to hold at the same time. Number one, that... Genesis does say that God created us male and female and that that was a part of the ordering of the universe. And so that's not it, it's not incidental, it's it's actual. And but then we look at things like homosexuality and uh trans identities and we have to sort of account for that. And so some people will say that those are just the way God created them, that God created those things intentionally. I don't think that's the case biblically. What we would say is is that is that those things are are products of the fall. Now, again, that that's something that's hard for people to hear and so we have to also hold with that this idea of being made in the image of God. Okay? Because yeah. all of us are made in the image of God and we are all valuable and I think for very large parts of of Christian history, the church has not treated gay people or trans people as people made in the image of God. But we, but we have treated them as, as something less than that. The fact of the matter is, is all of us are fallen. The fall has, mm-hmm. has impacted all of our bodies in one way or another. And so we are not all now what we were created to be. You know, people who have, who, whose bodies are not what we would say the way that God intended, intended them to be. And all of us have that to some degree or another. But, but we believe that male and female are an important part of what it means to be human, that these are identifying factors. And in fact, if you look throughout the creation story, the, the explanation of creation is God separating things out in order to bring order to the world. And so he divides day from night, land from water, um, animals. He creates animals, you know, male and female, uh, uh, according to their kind. And so there's a, there's an order to creation that that God made intentionally, and he didn't do that in order for some people to feel terrible about themselves. He did it ultimately as an act of goodness, as a mm-hmm. way that we could know and we could understand the world. And so and so what. 
what we would say there then this is this is what god intended and we realize that that not everyone experiences it as good but if god created us intentionally that way then one of one of the tasks is to say how can i live uh, both in the goodness of my body but also recognizing that there are things about my body that are not the way they were intended to be yeah. and again that's that's i think I think true for all of us, even even sexually, you know, those who are who are heterosexual, we have disordered desires when it comes to our our sexuality as well. And so gay people aren't the only one and trans people aren't the only ones. You know, we all are in in some level. But so I think we have to hold those things in tension, you know. That, that I do think it's true that there that there is an order and a purpose for sex and sexuality, uh, but also to, to recognize that that we are all that we are all fallen. So the extension of that is has to do with marriage. Now Genesis one doesn't doesn't mention marriage specifically, but at the very end of it, it it does at least refer to it where it says that's why the man shall leave his mother and father and mm-hmm. be united to his wife and they will become one flesh okay yeah. that's a that's a marriage verse and the the way we look that and look at that in the context of genesis is that when god called humans to rule and subdue the earth that we are called to do that at least partially through ordering the world Okay. In other words, separating some things from others, creating structures that 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 lead to the flourishing of the world, mm-hmm. and one of the ways that we do that, and in fact, really about the only way that is specifically designated by God, is through marriage. Marriage is a way that we order and subdue the world toward flourishing. And and this is one area where I think science and the Bible line up, that a man and woman in a family raising kids as a family is the best indicator of flourishing in at least our country, but I think it's I think it's fairly universal. Okay? If kids grow up in healthy families, that is really the the best environment for kids to to grow up, and that's something that we believe was instituted from the beginning um, as a way for us for us to do that. It hasn't always the 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 how marriage has been practiced, you know, has been different at different times in in history. But I think in general, when you have a healthy marriage and a healthy family, that that's sort of the fundamental um, unit of of creation or of ordering the world toward flourishing. So so those are those are some of the things that we can that we can draw out of there. And it's not the only place. Obviously there are there are other places in scripture that that use that as a foundation. Like I said, when Jesus was talking about marriage, he went back to Genesis. In in other places yeah, when when it's when it's talking about sexuality and and all of that, you know, obviously there's some expansion expansion on that. But Genesis is really kind of the foundation for all of that. Yeah. I think that's helpful to see the intentionality with which God created us. Mm -hmm. We were created male and female on purpose. We were not created as, you know, these, you know, single cell amoebas that can just divide, (laughs) you know, in order to to replicate themselves. There there is intentionality to our maleness and our femaleness. Mm -hmm. But it's also, I think, helpful for me to see that there's, at least in the context of Genesis and in the original design, there's not a whole lot of rigidity that's given to what, those gender roles look mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a whole other can of worms that can be a whole other <laughs> podcast talking about yeah. that kind of thing. But I think a lot of people in our culture struggle with um, how tightly we marry gender to sex because there are some mm-hmm. men that look at the box that we're trying to put them in when it comes to a gender role and say, that's not me. That's yeah. not how I fit. And I know that I've bucked against some of that myself too. I was I, I sent a very um, angsty group message to Corey and Holly a couple weeks ago because I was evaluating some curriculum and there was a woman in this really fabulous parenting curriculum who started talking about biblical motherhood and talked about the Azer helper role as making sure that her husband knew where to put his shoes. (laughs) And I just closed my computer and thought, yeah, Jesus came to save, redeem, and destined me to reign over the shoes in my house. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There is more yeah. to the story here. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I think that's I think that's also a contributing factor to, to some of the 
confusion that we have today. I, I think that there is such a thing as gender dysphoria where people are one thing biologically Mm-hmm. And yet they don't experience themselves that way. They look in the mirror and they see something completely different. And I think we need to have compassion for people who experience that because I, I believe that's real. And I don't I don't think it's something that's wanted. I don't think it's right. a, a rebellious sort of thing. I think it's it's actually a real thing that that is hard for an, any number of people. But I also think that some of it, especially sort of mild cases, could also be exacerbated when we try to put people into strict gender roles to say that that women, uh, that girls have to be frilly and lace and pink and dresses and and playing with dolls and all of that. And guys all have to be rough and tumble football players or, you know, kind of the traditional stereotypes. And, and I think it's really easy for, for a girl who years ago we would have called a tomboy because she wanted to be out playing football. But if she's in an environment where we're saying, no, you shouldn't be doing that, then she say, well, I don't, I don't seem to fit with this, with what it means to be a girl. I mean, because honestly, how do, how do those of us who have a male body know what it's like to be a girl? I, I don't know. But uh, some of that we pick up from our society for sure. And, and again, it's not, that's not all of it. But I think sometimes it's, it's exacerbated, exacerbated by, by that, that we try to put pe- push people into such a strict gender box that, that they go, I just, I don't, I don't fit into that. Yeah. Like I said, whole other podcast opportunity for us to dive into some of those things. Um, But before we run out of time, I do want to get to some questions that came in about the fall. So in Genesis, um, in chapter two, verses nine and 16 and 17, it talks about this tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Mm -hmm. Corey, help us understand why did God put these two trees in the garden? And (laughs) What's their purpose, and why would God put them there if he knew that Adam and Eve were going to eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and send everything into chaos? Yeah, well, you know, some of that depends on how you read Genesis, too. I think, I think in general, the answer, the, the answer has to do with the idea of trusting that God knows what he's doing. And I think that's true, I think, regardless of the the view that you take of of Genesis that there's an underlying level of trust and relationship with God uh, that God wanted to give people the option you know because I think I think a real relationship of trust I think a real relationship of freedom you have to have the ability to choose something else mm-hmm. right in other words you know part of being made in the image of God is sort of the responsibility and the the privilege of being able to forge your own path forward if you want. God warned them that if you decide to do this without me, you're going to mess things up and ultimately it's going to it's going to lead to death. And I think that's something that's true no matter what reading of of Genesis you have. The reality of it is is that we as humans try to oftentimes we try to go with go it without God. We try to do it on our live life on our own wisdom. We try to determine for ourselves what's right and wrong, um, which is what I think the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. And in fact, you know, there are two trees, right? The tree of mm-hmm. life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, the tree of life traditionally and, and certainly in my view represents this idea of trust in God <clears throat> that we continue to go back to that to that trust and we continue to eat from that tree so in that sense the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are, are kind of opposite trees sure. okay there's a there's a choice that I have that I can either trust that I can choose life or I can choose death I choose life by by trusting God and what he says by staying in regular relationship with him I, I trust myself when I try to become God and I try to determine for myself what is reality and I try to sort of take everything into into my own hands. So mm. I, I wouldn't even necessarily just say it's a test. I, I think it's a I think it's a tribute to human freedom. Sure. And our and our ability to choose our destiny and to be able to choose to love and to trust God or or not. So it sounds like from what you're saying there's uh, with the tree of the knowledge good and, of good and evil, there was from the very beginning the option to choose death. Mm-hmm. We had that option. Yeah. Um, 
But was physical bodily death part of creation, God's original design? We could choose that. But, you know, if someone, let's say Adam and Eve, chose not to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would they have died? Was death part of creation? Yeah, again, it depends on your view. If you take a literal young earth creationist view, then I would say not. But then but then you also have to you have to accept with it everything else that that comes with it that everything was created in six literal 24-hour days. And then, you know, of course, with that then you have uh well what about what do you do with dinosaurs, right? Yeah. And you know, with the with the other views, with a literary view, then it would be a matter of of saying, well, this is a, a story that is communicating a truth that, and and probably someone who has a literary view of Adam and Eve would say that that it would be a spiritual death. Yeah, it would probably define death more spiritually than literally. I think someone who would believe in a in an evolutionary kind of view, I, I think you have to believe that death was a part of the world. At least animal death was part of a wor- uh, part of the world before the fall. So, and in that case, then I think you would almost have to say that what they were talking about there was not physical death, but spiritual death. One interesting thing that John John Walton said, and I don't know if he. I, I don't know if he was putting this out there because he believes it or because he was saying, here's one possibility. But one of the things that I heard him say was that the tree of, and, and he would believe, I think probably in the in the middle view, the representative view, that Adam mm-hmm. and Eve were not the only humans around at the time, but they were actual historical figures. And he would say that the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life were actual you know, historical trees as well. He, he would say that Adam and Eve were not created immortal, but the tree of life was kind of like the fountain of youth. As long as they continued to go back to the tree of life and eat from it, then they could continue to live on perpetually. And so then after they sinned and God took away the tree of life, then there was no longer that fruit or that mechanism that would allow them to continue to live on forever. So, hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about um, the serpent here for a minute. Was the serpent Satan? You know, like there's deception that happens there, but was that, it, he's referred to in Genesis 3 as the serpent, but was it Satan? Yeah, uh, Christian history generally interprets it that way. That scripture itself, it, certainly Genesis doesn't intimate that necessarily. I'm, I'm trying to think if there were some other biblical passages that interpret the serpent as Satan. But I think at least in general Christian tradition, the serpent is definitely equated with Satan. And that brings up another interesting point. Like, So there are some people who would say that Adam and Eve's fall is basically a do-over of Satan's fall, right? Because because uh, biblical tradition also says that Satan was originally an angel, a creation of God, who rebelled, who probably wasn't through eating from a tree or whatever, but there was a fall of, of spiritual beings. And so there are some people who would say that actually the fall of Satan and the fall of the angels was what created death in the world to begin with. And so Adam and Eve were a part of that world. Satan was there, obviously, but death was already there even when Adam and Eve were in the garden, um, right. which is why God then created the garden as sort of a unique, special place that was different than the rest of creation. It was this sort of idyllic thing, and Adam and Eve could live in paradise in this greater world that was already fallen because of the uh, because of the sin of, of Lucifer. So anyway, that's a that's kind of another side note. But Christian tradition says that the serpent was Satan. Well, I think if you have stuck with us this far in this podcast episode, <laughs> you are all the more convinced why we needed to call this episode Questions in Genesis, because yeah. even as people who have spent their entire lives in the Bible and mm-hmm. people who have theological training, you and I both have plenty of questions 
yeah. about Genesis. So if mm-hmm. you still have them, you are not alone. You are in very good company. Yeah. So that's, I think that's about all the time that we have for today. Is there anything else you want to add, Corey, before we wrap it up here? Yeah. So just, just remember in all of this, the, it's, it's not the authority or the truth of scripture that's in question. I, I don't question any of that. The, the question is, is how do we read it? How do we get an accurate view of, of what Scripture actually says? That's where the questions lie. And that's why I think continuing to study the Bible and continuing to be aware of, of, of current scholarship, continuing to be aware of, of the book of nature as well, mm-hmm. whether, it's, whether it's science or syn- uh, psychology or linguistics or ar- archaeology or whatever, there are always new things that we're finding out. And if all truth is God's truth, we shouldn't find it threatening. Ultimately, the authority of Scripture is a, is a pre-commitment that we have. That's something that, that, we, are, that we are committed to. And, and the foundation of that is Jesus's, Jesus and his death and resurrection. Okay, yeah. that's that's the the thing that we hang our hat on. And with the rest of it, if we're staying faithful to that, if we're staying true to that, then we can, then these, the rest of this is really interesting questions. And some of them work and some of them don't. Some of them are convincing and some of them are not. Uh, but they're not, I think, something that should destroy your faith. Yeah, certainly interesting things to talk about. And they make for good podcasts that leave more questions than answers. <laughs> Yeah, they do. Well, thank you again for joining us, all you listeners, for another episode of the Wait Park Church Conversations podcast. I'm sure that you have plenty of questions, and if those are ones that you would like to process with us, we would love to hear from you. If you could send those questions to podcasts at waitparkchurch.org, we'd love to chat with you, dialogue, answer what we can, point you in the direction of resources, whatever we can do to help, we are here for you as you continue to ask those questions in Genesis. You've been listening to the Wait Park Church Weekly Conversations Podcast, a ministry of Wait Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. If you like what you've heard and you don't currently have a church community, we'd love for you to join us. If you have feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at waitparkchurch.org.